0: My mom will tell you now, she's like, oh, I always knew Nick would do something with computers or computers and music, right? And um, and really, I think uh, music and music production was kind of like the fundamental
1: building blocks for the internet. Zach here from Boston Speaks Up. Welcome to episode 100. That was the voice of Nick Cicero. He is today's guest. He's a good friend of mine. He's a media entrepreneur. He's an analyst. He sold his social video analytics company Del Mondo to Conviva back in 2018. He left Conviva in 2022. He's actually doing some consulting work with Value Creation Labs and a bunch of work on his own. He's teaching up at Syracuse University at Newhouse incredible incredible brain he is he started his career kind of more in music and media production but he's been around for all the major events in social media um doing really really important impactful campaigns and 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 monitoring and analytics in in the sort of social media tidal wave that began in the 2000s and is really still going today Uh, so without further ado let's get to the episode cheers Zach video here from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with Nick Cicero. He's a media entrepreneur, an analyst. Uh, he's a friend. And uh, Nick, why don't you just ground listeners in sort of your present day reality, what you're up to. And then I think what's going to be super interesting for folks is sort of like how you got to where you are and in the, in the journey that you've been on. But really appreciate you uh, joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Zach. Thanks for having me. I have been a long-time
0: listener, first-time caller to Boston Speaks Up, and I'm excited to be here. Um, so, as you mentioned, I'm Nick Cicero, and today I work as a consultant, an advisor, and an investor to lots of early-stage and growth companies, really helping All across the board from getting them off the ground and launched to established companies who want to kind of expand their presence in the market. Um, I've spent more than 15 years in the space myself. Uh, I'm one of those folks that kind of came up as social media was just starting to become a discipline. But over the last 15 years, I've I've spent a lot of my time in media and advertising and in technology startups um, all across the space. And uh, then as an entrepreneur myself, which I'm sure that we'll talk about a little bit more.
1: Cool. Yeah. I want to talk about sort of the the journey you went on because I've known you for a better part of a decade. There's a number of different reasons why we would have always met. We kind of were in the same orbit. Different people introduced us at different points. Um, we had chances to meet through investors, et cetera. Um, and still in this and and we work together you know we've been we've been consulting together for the past year and we were doing the pre-podcast um q a and just found myself learning more and more about you that i didn't even realize kind of early on in your in your career so um i guess i want to go through like the whole arc of your journey but actually going going all the way back talk about your upbringing because one thing that i admire a lot about you and it was apparent to me in the mid 2010s, when we really started to like, collaborate and get to know each other. And it's apparent to me now that you're a man of action, you don't mind rolling up your sleeves and doing work. Um, you've successfully sold your company, yet you still are willing to like, work and write and and sort of like, just take things to the hoop, as I like to say. Um, you're a great strategist, but you also like take action against that strategy. Um, I feel like that came from your upbringing, um, but can you share a bit about sort of just where you grew up and, and what your what your upbringing was like? Yeah, sure. So, uh, so
0: I grew up in Syracuse in upstate New York and, um, you know, spent a lot of time uh, on the job site with my dad, who is a carpenter and then construction. Uh, so, always either on a job site in the outdoors or doing something creative, right? So, at the same time that that I like to play sports and I like to hang out with my friends and everything, I was also really into like music and playing the trumpet. Um, so, I started playing trumpet when I was seven and, you know, that ended up kind of taking me all the way through college where I ended up studying music education as an undergrad. Uh, but yeah, in the the, you know, early days was a lot of a lot of building things and making things right i always tell people it's no surprise to me that that i became an entrepreneur and i love building things because that's what everybody in my family does my dad is in construction and 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 is always building either commercial buildings or you know doing some residential things on the side uh, or just fixing up our own homes and and teaching me kind of along the way uh, i I've, I've always been involved with building things and then even when I got really into to music, as much as I played trumpet and I loved performing, uh, I really got into composition and music production, and actually like taking some turning something into nothing. Uh, that kind of came out of my own world, right so I'm somebody who even though I'm not a very good artist, I don't really draw very well I like to 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 take something doodle things right I'm very very tangible and and uh, I'm really interested in like taking taking this nugget of an idea and seeing where it can go um, and you can do that every day but I think the other piece of it is also seeing that through um, which is is you know kind of one of the things why you know finally when uh, when I kind of got sick of building things for for other people i said hey why do not why aren't i building something for myself and that's kind of when i started to kind of apply my own building techniques toward launching my own company del mondo but yeah a lot of a lot of fishing a lot of playing music you know all sorts of levels of creativity right my mom would always challenge me take me to different diff- different areas i remember going to like you know uh an academic Olympics when I was a kid, and and you know, with kids in a totally different school district, and my mom just kind of like brought me myself to go and compete, where I didn't know anybody. Just doing fun things like that to to explore my horizons, you know, taking me to Raffi concerts, right, singing in the car, um, all those things. I remember just being inundated with creation
1: and creativity and individuality from my parents. That's so cool. Uh, so, so I want to talk. Double click on the. On sort of your foray into media, which sounds like music, um, trumpet players unite. I did not play all the way through college, although I, I played through eighth grade, which was a decent amount of time. Um, loved me some good brass, so we'll have to maybe we'll have to dust off the trumpets one day, and, and uh, I don't know, maybe take a trip down to New Orleans and just <laughs> have some fun. Um, talk to me about the music, like the first. Part like I would say your first entrepreneurial um, journey was through music, and yeah. so talk a bit about like, like when did that start? Like high school into college, you, know, you went to Syracuse. Like, but talk a bit a bit about sort of that part of the um, of the journey because you kind of got you went to a, another level and another level like pretty pretty quickly, and to um, to an extent that I didn't even realize when we were kind of going through the the pre podcast sort of QA prep. Um but yeah, share share a bit about that part of that part of the um of your experience sort of, you know, with music, creating music and and then how it naturally led into you sort of like working with artists and brands. Yeah, it's so it's so funny because my mom will tell you
0: now, she's like, oh I always knew Nick would do something with computers or computers and music. Right. And um and really I think uh music and music production was kind of like the fundamental building blocks for the internet in a lot of ways. There's a lot of similarities between learning new technology, taking things, putting them together, figuring out, you know, early days of music production was not what it what it was, right? And I'm saying early being 36, right? And I'm sure, I'm sure people that, that have a totally different point of view, but like in my world, like digital music production, early versions of like, Pro Tools or, or Fruity Loops or, you know, and then, and for me, it was GarageBand that came out and kind of started to unlock some of those things for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of them throughout my career, I feel like one of the the things that I've been able to do is connect with new forms of technology um, and then apply them to non-technology practices, right? So even with social media, right, social media was very technological and advances in technology and and, in the internet that then normal regular business people that were doing things that didn't have anything to do with the, the internet, at least they thought, right, are now having to be a part of. The same thing is true with kind of like music production, you're taking all of these different sounds, you're taking all of these different uh, tools that you have, and you're trying to figure out how to put them all together and make them sound really good. And then once you put them together, you have to figure out how to to get it out there to get people to hear, right. And, and so all of those things, you know, music was kind of the Combining of all of those things together, right? I, I was creating something from nothing. I was, I was being creative. I was getting to use technology and computers with, you know, cutting things up with, with, with GarageBand or recording in my trumpet, right? But then you also had this, this component of how do I get people to listen to it? So that was, oh, well, there's, websites, there's blogs, there's forums, there's message boards, right? There's this new thing called MySpace that's out there. And there's that whole aspect of distribution. And then once you get it out there, like how many people are listening to it, the whole data component, like who's listening to it? Is it working? Is it too long? Is it too short? Um, You know, does it sound good? Does the sound off? So kind of all of those things go in to, to, I think, to formulating kind of like who I am today. So, you know, to make a, a, a long story, longer or maybe shorter uh, basically when i was in high school out of all things i took a music business class and the music cool. business class was this like you know local rock star type type of guy played in a band loved you know regional band went to tour, did all the the shows and things and was you know a business teacher taught business economics to high school students right and he came in with this music business class and in that music business class they taught us how to learn the basics of Photoshop. And I don't know what it was about that, but I was doing Photoshop and then GarageBand was kind of coming out around the same time. And I had just gotten introduced to that in kind of a music class. And all these things clicked. And so I ended up, uh, I, we ended up having to like make album covers for the class as an assignment. And I just happened to be like searching for things on the internet, looking and researching things in the, the school computer lab. And I found this site lulu.com, which is actually still around today. It's pretty big uh, in the self-publishing world. And it was still doing that back then in like 2004, 2005. And uh, I basically sold a book cover. To somebody like I got a job where somebody's like, "Hey, I need a book cover for my self-published book. Who can design it for me?" And I think I got fifty bucks to do it. Um, and it was about drinking, driving, and surviving. Which my mom, when she saw kind of like the cover that I made, was you know was definitely not um, not thrilled about the content to say the least. <laughs> but it was like, "Wow, that's really interesting. Somebody actually like paid you money online to to do that." Um, yeah. and so that kind of like quickly dovetailed into this, this whole world of like making, um, making things. And so from there I was always writing and producing, um, uh, my own songs and, and the real catalyst was in college when I got access to a 24 hour internet, which I never had at home. We always had like a dial up internet. Um, so I had, a, I had constant access to the internet and I had my own Mac laptop. And from there I started to Understand that, hey, people actually, you know, are paying just like they paid me for the album cover. They want to pay you to write jingles, to write the background music for their songs. Um, you know, maybe even to help produce the the songs. Right? I never wanted to be like, you know, I wasn't wasn't trying to be like a rapper or a singer or, or anything like that. I would have, you know, probably prefer to be a jazz musician. You know, so I really liked making the instrumentals. Um, so when you have a lot of time on your hands as a music student going to college, having a good time working on your craft uh, and you have 24 hour access to the internet and this brand new thing called MySpace and Facebook that had just launched the first year that I was in school. Um, all of that led to this, this world where I just started to like find and meet people online and upload my music, which I was now able to do because I had this connection from college, uh, from the college internet. And, uh, Started to charge people money to to make jingles, to make background music, and you know by the end of my freshman year, I realized like, hey, I, I think I can make a career out of. I would say like doing something on the internet. It wasn't quite marketing yet, but it was at that point selling music. But I was obviously marketing myself, so that's kind of like and the year, early formulation,
1: early days. In that early, and, and that was like two thousand five, two thousand six. Yeah, two thousand four, two thousand five. Two thousand four, two thousand five. So that was like you were a couple of years behind me. I remember like sophomore year. I was it was two thousand four, two thousand five for me, and um, Facebook was just introduced to Boston University's campus, but it was still like just being introduced to campuses. Um, and MySpace was definitely still the key player for folks that were really like trying to build media, like. I you know build media IP coll- you know kind of like connect um I don't know, like talk like th- that that which is probably fair to say right so like f- at that point in time MySpace was more where you could m- and it was a little bit more music you know inclined you know music inclined yeah. musically inclined right
0: yeah I mean that was my world so like I was like super into making music and then when I got to to college I was really into like hip hop and jazz and that whole world and then realizing that hey like the kind of the world of music producers and actually i ended up writing about this in my grad school kind of thesis or research paper, which is all about like the rise of the the future producer, right? Which is the name of uh, one of the early forums that I was in, kind of pre-Facebook, futureproducers.com. Interesting. And, and that was that like whole idea that the the, the individual produced, like everybody had kno- knew the artist, right? But how many people actually like knew about the people that were behind the boards, right? Like maybe like the really, really nerdy music people, but like not the mainstream consumer, right? Especially in the world of like pop music, hip hop music, and, you know, obviously, younger generations always forget the older stuff. So, you know, thinking about some of the most legendary producers like Quincy, you know, Quincy Jones and stuff. So, you know, you don't you don't always learn about those things at young ages when you're a, a dumb college kid. But now this new idea of the producer was coming out. So, like YouTube was coming out. I remember YouTube, I think came out in my freshman or or sophomore year of college. And there were people that were uploading videos of themselves making beats and putting them up on YouTube. And I remember distinctly telling my roommate, like, man, there's going to be people that are just going to blow up because they, you know, are putting all these videos up on YouTube and people are going to know who they are. And that like, they're going to get famous
1: just by doing that. Um, Like you could see that you could see the future unfolding.
0: Yeah. Like I could see that, that there was, there were tons of people that were competing to try to be you know, starting to want to be known for themselves as a producer, right? Like I make music and I sell beats to rappers or I, you know, produce platinum records with songwriters, singer songwriters. Right. And all these things that, that, but it was, they were starting to take credit for themselves and build their own personal Mm -hmm. brand. And that's the other thing, obviously, I think that we've seen, um, without like going down a rabbit hole, like the, the concept of the personal brand in the world of, constant publishing, it's something that's drastically changed over the last, yeah. you know, 20 years now, right? And and I guess it's 20 years, right? 2024, 2004. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I mean, so, yeah, like, since I've been doing this for 20 years, that was something that was just starting to me to feel like, that was coming out was like, hey, individuals were going online, they were, they were building up their personal brands in a way that was, uh, you know, new. And then, per, you know, for me, I was hyper focused on music production. So, I saw yeah. every aspect of that as, as a kind of group.
1: Yeah. So, so, talk a bit about some of the, com- like, the clients that you kind of had early on when you were working with, you know, when you were sort of like a music media producer entrepreneur. Yeah so a lot of it was selling music to to like
0: music libraries the same way that music libraries work today right it hasn't really changed it's it's just you know it's about finding the connections finding the people and then having good enough music and a diverse range of music that fits in a catalog so once again, I I got introduced through this come to this company Howcast that was like one of the early YouTube MCNs, which I didn't even know that that was like a thing at the time. But they were really yeah. early on starting to make money in like 2006, 2007 from oh, YouTube. That's early
1: because like every like us media nerds know the MCNs craze was like from like early 2010s exactly. Yeah. And this Howcast yeah. this was probably like 2000 and maybe 2007, 2008. I guess I so two say. three years ahead of its time.
0: Yeah, yeah. and and they were they were really early, they were from New York and they were like, Hey, we're making, we're making this giant website with all of these how to videos, how to do all sorts of different things. And, uh, so I started to, to, you know, make a bunch of you know, sell them a bunch of background music. And then I met a few people that had these music licensing libraries through MySpace. And a lot of times, like people on MySpace, if you remember, like MySpace bulletins, that was basically like Twitter before Twitter. People would just throw out random things inside of MySpace bulletins, and there'd be just like a giant list of basically like new posts that people were pushing, not quite a forum because there wasn't like really that depth of conversation, but they were just like, like a bulletin board. Um, So I would like respond to tons of those, those, and some of them were, were total, you know, scammers and, just like everything you've ever heard about the music business, the traditional scams. Uh, but then, you know, a couple of those people broke through. I got my music placed in a couple of different music libraries. And then all of a sudden it started to, to go on TV shows like American Idol or Dog the Bounty Hunter, or there was this one cool show on A&E that I think I did the most music that in my career on like one single show was this show like reality show about prison police about like what it's like to be a corrections officer what it's like to be working in the prisons um and i placed like a bunch of you know they had some like grimy hip-hop music in the background so i had some good beats that fit that um nice yeah and so you know and then just a couple other random things like from there i started to network and branch out i realized that hey like there's this i can this is going to be a thing I'm not, i don't know if i'm going to just be a teacher so like my little brother's friend from the hockey team, his dad ran. Was there a point,
1: sorry to interrupt, but was there a point where you were thinking you might be a teacher? Yeah. I mean, I started school as music
0: education and it was basically my junior year. And, and I started to get really like through music production, I started to learn all of the other things that come with the internet and social media. I taught mm-hmm. myself front end, you know, HTML and CSS so I could make dope in- animations and graphics on my MySpace page. And then I actually like ended up doing that for other people and making some money doing that. Right. And I really liked blogging and writing. Um, and I had taken on a journalism minor. And so I was like really into, you know, really into like covering the news and the media. And I worked at a Gannett newspaper uh, as an intern, kind of like starting to take a lot of these things instead of just doing it, doing it with music production i was starting to like apply all the stuff i was doing to other disciplines so when i worked at the the democrat chronicle in rochester we built a social networking website basically for you know rochester area students called rock loop and like some of the people that were part of that program even have like gone on to do really awesome stuff there are like a lot of really good people that came out of that Rochester area during the same time that I was in school at some of the different colleges that were there. Um, uh, You know, there's like Alex Fitzpatrick, who's really, you know, he's he's kind of like blown up. He's, you know, I think he's at Axios now, but he was at Time. Mm -hmm. David Spinks, who's like probably one of the world's leaders and most knowledgeable people in community building. He went to a college that was you know, kind of just 45 minutes down the road from mine in the Rochester area. And we all kind of like we're we're working on similar projects at different kind of like same times and doing these types of things. So, everybody that's worked on these programs has gone on to do some like pretty awesome stuff. And that was that point where I realized, hey, I love teaching and and I actually taught music in grad school. And I teach today and I'm a professor. So, I've never stopped being a teacher. I just realized um, I don't know if I want a teacher at, at 21 years old to walk right out of college and walk right into a classroom and have that be my profession. I was, I was, I was getting a lot of traction with this internet, internet marketing, music hybrid worlds. What, you know, what shape, what job is that going to take? That was what I was still figuring out. Um, yeah. But yeah, but, 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 there, yeah, that, there was that moment in, in junior year where I was like, listen, I'm going to drop my education requirement that comes with a whole bunch of, you know, state certifications and all that other stuff. And, and, um, I just really leaned into this new media. Um, uh, and then pretty much from there I started to like basically build my own curriculum in college. So, uh, my program was super, uh, supportive of me the music program. They, you know, they were thinking about a music business degree. So like when they saw somebody like me having such success, I think that gave them a lot of confidence to move ahead with that yeah. music business degree too. Um, And they, like, helped me out. They, like, introed me with different people that I've met over the years that then, you know, so so they were, like, really supportive of what I was trying to do. Um, Yeah. And then, you know, yeah. So, that was kind of, like, ultimately, it kind of came to a head. And that's how I ended up getting to Syracuse was I knew about Syracuse. My, you know, private trumpet teacher taught at Syracuse. I took lessons there when I was in high school. Um, But I read this book, Hey Whipple, squeeze this. And I was really struggling to figure out like, what do I do next? And what am I going to graduate with? I have this degree in music and journalism. I have my own business that I'm doing entrepreneurially on the side, but I didn't really know what that, you know, to me, it was kind of like, hey, you're in college, you got to go and get a real job. Right? So I started to learn more about like, who, like who's can be like this, music guy, marketing guy. And I learned about what a music supervisor was. And I learned that there were people like in ad agencies that would pick music, right? The people that were hiring me with some of these jobs. I was like, well, don't you have a full-time job? How do I have your full-time job? Um, and then I read that book, Hey Whipple Squeeze This. And then that led me to Syracuse, which talked about how great of a of an advertising school that Syracuse was and and so, by the time I applied and got into to grad school, I went right from undergrad into the grad program at Newhouse. Um, and this is when, like, social media was now a a thing. It was really like mm-hmm. becoming a business discipline. I knew I knew it was at that point, and so did two thousand nine, two thousand nine, yeah, yeah, two thousand nine, yeah. and and the world knew that social yeah, media was now like off. a. Like internet marketing was a thing in the two thousands, right? Well, twenty tens was social media marketing, and that's really the when it started. And and so I went into Syracuse, kind of in this, this, this. You know, my professor described it as like a creative tornado, where it's like I have all of this stuff that's happening because I'm so tapped in to these new social networks. I was, you know, really early on Twitter, and uh, and then you go into like a traditional ad program, journalism program, like Newhouse at this like really critical crossroads. And and so that basically catapulted me, I, I kind of dropped the music production, even though I always have been worked on it. And I, and I said, Hey, this is my focus is like really being this, this expert at, at combining these new tools and technologies and applying them together. And, and, and it's going to be creative, it's going to be advertising, content I don't know, and, and this is what I'm going to go with. And that's kind of when
1: I, I went into Syracuse. And when you went to Syracuse, I feel like you went, like, things kind of went to another level. You had, obviously, a top media school that you were in, a great network. You were, I like like the word tornado. Um, So, you had this sort of, like, you know, this confluence of things that was all just, like, happening in your life, but also in the world, social, like, social platforms had emerged, like now Twitter's emerged, YouTube's now established, more MCNs are popping up. Um, When did you, like, was it when you were at Syracuse, like, when did you get involved with like, like, Live Fire? Or was there, what was like a stepping stone towards Live Fire? Because like, I'd be curious, like, a lot of the experience you had there, it's it's so interesting that that playbook that started to play out in the early 2010s, it's, it's a prudent playbook today (laughs) Um, for sort of how to engage with your communities and leverage analytics from your communities um, to create, you know, more appropriate social engagement where, you know, brands and influencers or artists or celebrities are sort of like coalesced together. And so talk about that, like, you know, at a ground level, some of the stuff that you did. Um, and I'm just curious, like where in the timeline that was, was that like, while you were at Syracuse, you started doing that stuff or like, it was sort of like that helped well, yeah. you into live fire. No. So
0: after, after grad school, I worked and I worked basically as I was looking for jobs as a strategist or, you know, I applied for copywriter jobs, but like strategists always seemed to be a really good role for me building the strategy coming in. Like copywriter almost seemed a little bit more of like to. Almost too uh, too repetitive in certain ways. Even though I do like it, it's just I like the big picture. I like being able to kind of like set the set the whole vision, um, and so after. After grad school, I worked in a few ad agencies, kind of doing social media strategy, digital marketing, web strategy, kind of, you know, in that role, social strategists were just starting to become a thing. So it was kind of this hybrid digital marketing role, especially in a regional ad agency. And I worked with some pretty cool clients like Extreme Makeover, Home Edition, Subway, Zaps, Potato Chips, Dirty's Potato Chips. Um you know fun stuff like that when dixie the jacksonville jaguars you know alarm.com which ended up you know getting bought by adt one of the the early smart home devices and from there i was it was like this hybrid of digital marketing social marketing and in my world it was like strategic communications on the social platforms so how do we build campaigns to recruit and attract you know how do we build applications right so like early versions of Facebook that you had, you know, code that you could put on Facebook. I was really involved in building a lot of Facebook applications for clients or, you know, we worked with this chapstick company that gave 75,000 free soft lips to people right through a Facebook app where they just filled out their email address, right? It was a crazy, you know, conversion, first party data grab, uh, you know, being able to do redemptions and giveaways. Uh, So I worked building a lot of social strategies, digital marketing strategies, analytics programs for, you know, a lot of those types of clients. So regional, you know, regional restaurants, brands, quick serve, as well as, you know, consumer brands as well. Uh, at the same time, I also joined Social Fresh. I met a guy, Jason Keith, through Twitter, and it, he was really leading this early charge of social media education, really informing the industry about like new trends. And so I joined uh, Social Fresh as an editor and a writer, and I was writing all this content. I was covering the latest news and trends and updates that were happening, and we were putting on events. So I was meeting some of the best thought leaders in the world and some of the you know people that were on the cutting edge of all of these shifts that were happening in marketing and and customer experience, right? Uh, Everybody was telling me that, hey, you're, you know... You're you're a forward thinker, you know. You need you know you should be in San Francisco. That's where all of the social media companies are. That's where all the startups are. Uh, so after a few years in the agency world, I I ended up getting a job at Live Fire in San Francisco, and you know from there they were once again an early stage startup company that was starting to build these kind of hybrid social customer engagement products. So they're most commonly known for like building comment boxes and live chat products on things like TechCrunch and the new york times but they were starting to expand and and bring in more data from twitter from facebook that they were just getting access to because we were starting to see that nobody wanted to leave comments anymore comments are a mess so people were sharing articles to twitter sharing articles to facebook and people were commenting there instead and so we built some of the first systems that allowed you to basically like syndicate social content onto your website in a lot of different Mm -hmm. capacities with technology. So I was working with like Sports Illustrated, AOL, Teen Vogue, right? The whole content aspect. So basically like any media and news or outlet, we were basically building these on-site slash social experiences. Um, I was you know, kind of building with some of the early versions of Twitter's API, with Facebook's uh, open API graph, which was like crazy when you had access, we were doing things like being able to geofence within a mile of a location. And that's when, you know, all of these platforms were overly collecting your data. So there was a significant amount of, of, of data and interest points that you could build things off of, it was kind of the Wild West. Uh, but I was working directly with those. We, I was going down to Twitter's offices down the street from us. I was meeting with them. I was going to meet with Facebook. We were kind of launching these new products. You know, I got to work with some pretty cool people like uh, All Things D. I got to go to the All Things D conference and literally was in the middle of a of a circle at the All Things D conference with Sheryl Sandberg, Tim Cook, Dick Costolo. Tim Cook and I shook hands. He's got amazingly soft hands, but a firm handshake. It's like, you know, so I I was, I got to really rub elbows with so many cool people, but also be involved with it. So we were building those experiences that people were like, "Hey, that's so cool, right?" Like, Dick Costello would, would come across the field, and he's like, "Hey, Nick, I saw that awesome Twitter wall that you guys got going on over there. That's cool." You know, we went down to Twitter's office and hosted a Twitter wall and, and did an event with like Barritone Thurston, where like I threw up a Twitter wall at one of his comedy hack hackathons that he did. Nice. Um, so, working in San Francisco in 2000. And 2013, 2012, it's right in the moment when all of the social networks are really blowing up. Um, And so I got to work on like a lot of cool things. But, you know, some of the things that were really interesting were like the PlayStation 4 campaign, where we were using trending data to curate all of these reviews as people were coming out as they launched the PlayStation 4, right? People were putting up their videos on YouTube with their reviews and and clips and trailers, right? We really helped them embrace the creator community and say, hey, like, let's curate all of those videos up on the official launch website. Let's use the data and build trending widgets that tell people, hey, here's the game that people are most excited about in social media. Now, like, we were just doing that as 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 engagement tools. To be basically mm-hmm. like get people on the site more, get them to be stickier, right? Um yeah. and the same thing
1: like with Oprah. You know. Well what's interesting about that before you go to tell the Oprah one, um, uh, it's using analytics, not necessarily like, like it's it's not using analytics for the sake of analytics and, and but it's it's leveraging sort of like the leaderboard concept and sort of the and this was early, right? It's this the wisdom was, this of crowds, like right? Like early. it's, it's, it's yeah. the ultimate
0: curation, right? There's two forms of like the world we live in is all about curation. And I think that the curation is going to be increasingly important in the future as well. Right. And there's only two lenses of curation, right? There's manual curation and there's automated curation, right? And you can, you can slice and dice the automated curation in all sorts of ways. Is it personalized? Is it curated through a lens? Um, but that that is what you have. And in and, and LiveFire, we would always really lean into the two forms of expert curation. So for example, like we would build things with Sports Illustrated or ESPN or whomever, where we would pull in the tweets from just their announcers or just the top players and announcers. And that was like before anybody started to think about building that into their apps and stuff like that, because that was the relevant conversation if you were sitting on the game tracker watching the Syracuse game on Sports Illustrated's website, like what else is there, right? Like let's put in those. So there's that level of the expert curation. And then there's the wisdom of crowds. There's the data-driven curation, which is just, let's put that out in the world and take the pulse of the world and, and, you know, be a mirror for the stories that the world is talking about naturally.
1: I love that. That's a really good riff on curation. Talk about um, talk about the, the work that you did um, with Oprah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there, it was fun, but I think it's also just like there's a
0: lesson to be learned here. And that is, you know, you have to figure out, especially today in the world of, of social marketing, digital media, right? New forms of technology. Oftentimes, like being first is a strategic advantage and it can be like a strategic uh, position that you have as a company, right? And one of the things that that we were able to do is we happened to be working with Oprah already, um, getting ready to launch this live class show with her. She was going to go on tour. She was going to have a live studio audience and encourage people from social media to, to submit their questions. And then she was going to respond and ask you know, answer people's questions right. Live television, so you know people are there; they're watching as it's happening, right? And they can participate. Um, we had always planned; we were we had built a lot of these, uh, you know, TV-enabled social tools, right? So I could put tweets on the broadcast. I could show an Instagram photo on the broadcast. Um, but what we wanted to do is we wanted to 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 really tap into this brand new thing that came out: Inst- Instagram video. So we had a whole strategy with Oprah, where we would feature tweets, we would feature Instagram posts, people could use a hashtag, and then, you know, we have a little app that the the, the producer can pull up the posts, pull up the tweets, and then Oprah would talk to them. Um, But Instagram video had just come out, and it was a brand new thing. And so we thought, hey, like, what if we let people actually, like, record themselves asking Oprah a question, and then we could, you know, send them a message, get their rights, but then actually, like, feature people's videos on TV? What's more appealing than just seeing your name on TV. Well, that's a video of you on television next to Oprah and Brene Brown. Um, so w- we were able to really tap into our partnership with Instagram and, and Facebook to be able to get access and, and build some really cool tools that would embed the native Instagram video and in, inside so you could play it and, and do all of those things. But it was just like a really awesome experience to to not only to be able to like, technically execute a first in its kind and put the first Instagram video on television. But then at the same time, just to to see the types of content that come in, obviously it's like very strong and meaningful. The brand of Oprah is very powerful and the women, the people that, that are, you know, in her community, that, that, you know, hang off for every word that take inspiration from her daily. um, It's amazing. Like, you you know, you have lots of different projects like that I've worked on and, and, you know, There's Zaps chips where people love eating chips and then there's, you know, Oprah that's people are it's changing their lives, right? And there's different exciting pieces about both of them. But sometimes it's really nice to kind of see some of that really earnest, uh, that type of content that that was coming in, right? Like you're seeing all these people post all these videos, trying to to talk to Oprah. And, and this is also in, you know, 2013, when video on the internet was still or video and social media was still like a very brand new thing. Facebook was just for your friends, this Instagram, you know, YouTube was pretty much the place where people were making videos. That was it. When we thought about like the world of social media it was like, oh, YouTube is for video. Facebook's not for video. Twitter's not for video. But now everything's for video, which uh, you know, is kind of crazy. So we uh, we had a really good time and I got to tour with Oprah. We went to a couple of different cities together. I got to kind of see how she and her team work behind the scenes, which is, uh, you know, once in a lifetime type opportunity for sure. Um, and I got to be in a prayer circle with Oprah, which is really cool. So it was some yeah, fun, nice. you know, fun, fun experiences.
1: That's cool. Uh, I remember that. Oh, I remember when, uh, I mean, I'm sure they've, they've connected more than once, but I remember Oprah and Brene Brown sitting down. Cause, cause Brene Yeah, Brown, that was the one that was, I was on. Oprah and Brene Brown. That was the one you were on? Yeah. Cause yeah. I, yeah embrace Your Vulnerability, Brene Brown, who had that, like she kind of blew up from initially from a Ted talk and like, um my wife and I have like embraced her like parenting manifesto and everything. But yeah, no. Oprah talk about curation, you know. Oprah, you know, fosters and 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 kind of curates like a really inspiring mix of people. Uh, I think that's part of why she's inspiring is because she she kind of like she creates a whole rising tide of 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 inspiring figures and like lifts everyone up, you know, with her, you know, or together. Yeah. I'm curious at what point did you start to gain maybe the confidence, the desire to start your own company as you started to get successes. Um, and, you know, you're, you know, and, you know, talk to me, you know, in, in San Francisco, New York, and like, where did sort of, when, you know, when did Del Mondo start to come into the picture? <laughs> Yeah,
0: um, you know, basically after you know spending a few years in San Francisco, I moved to New York. i I'd always wanted to live in New York City and kind of work in New York City, and, and I started off coming out of Syracuse. I went down to Florida, across the country to San Francisco, and I was like, hey, I'm gonna come, I'm gonna come back to back to New York and see what we can do there. And I made a lot of really good connections, and and um, and so I started working for a, a software company in new york and you know once again digital social marketing you know media and analytics one of the major like social media management 1.0 tools right the, that one of those things like a sprinkler spread fast right the, the mm-hmm. tools that would schedule listen you know and uh, you know scheduling listening customer moderation right all in one social media management service and i was working with a you know agencies and media companies helping them develop social analytics strategies listening strategies and you know one of the things and that i consulting? was
1: consulting like what was your i was a, you i was for?
0: um i was a strategist so i was like yeah basically that's what i as a, was a strategist i was kind of like a sales yeah. i would say it was like a hybrid sales and success role where you know yeah. i had accounts that i was really developing but it was you know I wasn't building product or anything. I was kind of doing all of it, like helping really with customers. So I was really on the front lines with customers and then we like the marketing team helping out with the marketing mm-hmm. as well. Um, so after a year, you know, as I was spending that time in New York, I was really kind of like dabbling with different ideas, reconnecting with old friends and, you know, some people from my music world, some people from, you know, other parts of the advertising world. And, you know, a couple of things I had, I had, been thinking about as i made the move from the west coast back to new york and the first was just coming off of like the oprah campaign and everything and, and playstation just how much video was becoming a part of the world uh as you know in the internet and
1: social media right there was this specifically this, like social like online like video? social video yeah like video yeah.
0: on the internet right um yeah. you know i guess you. you know i'd watch netflix and and you know that's certainly like there was that stuff. But yeah, a lot of it was like watching videos on YouTube and starting to realize like, hey, more and more people are making videos online. Um, Snapchat was this new app that I had started to hear about in San Francisco. A couple people were like starting to to use it and play around with it. And, and then by the time that I basically moved to New York, I felt like it followed me across the country. And then Vine blew up as well. So like, Right there, when you started to see, like, there was Vine, there was Snapchat that was coming out, there was this really, you know, there was this kind of new push for video-driven content in social media. Uh, And the other thing that I noticed was that, like, the projects that I was on... it's, it's really tough to get people to come and see them. Like, let's just be honest, web traffic. The, and it's, it's, you know, this was 10 years ago. So, like, today is a, you know, it's probably even harder, right? To get people on your website, to get them to stay there, to stay engaged. It's not easy, right? It's never easy. And so, even though we were building like these really cool engagement experiences, like, why were people wanting to be there, right? And, and we always, every customer, even though they would be successful, you still had to get your audience to that page, you still had to get them to that page to want to see those tweets to want to see that trending that those videos were trending. And, you know, that's where I started to realize kind of the power of influencers. And so I started off kind of just on the side myself, pitching a few different creators and things here or there and, and almost pitching it as like, publisher, creator partnerships because that's kind of what i knew was the media world a lot of these media outlets were trying to sell branded content they were trying to sell Mm -hmm. you know other forms of advertising i was like well why don't i go get you this like person that has a lot of followers on youtube this person that has a lot of followers on twitter or on instagram like they can send all the traffic look at the, the look at some of the examples of x y and z thing that we've done um and I was doing that at the other company, and then you know the the company that I worked at was going through and 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 you know ultimately, um I got really i got i started to get more and more into analytics and influencers and um and so I had started this idea of Del Mondo as kind of to be a, uh, an umbrella for my side business, so I didn't have to call it Nick Cicero because I was at, once again i've always been it's always been nervous to take that risk as an entrepreneur and just like say, hey, I'm by myself and I'm running this business. That's a really big, it's a really big step, you know, for anybody to take at any stage, even if you're a two-time founder, three-time founder, I don't care how many times you've been a successful founder even, um, to say, to put all of your weight behind a brand or a company and, and make it yourself right uh, is a lot right and same thing to put it all on your name is also very difficult too so i was i had i had this idea of del mondo and the the kind of the concept and i was like okay well let me try to do some consulting some consulting opportunities and then i ended up uh you know ended up uh leaving leaving expion um, where I was working because I, I had been working with Jesse Redness and David Beck and they basically came to me and said, Hey, listen, we're going to be starting our own consulting and an advisory and VC group. And I really liked that. We had met through Twitter. You know, we we kind of had hit it off. And then David became my client when I worked in New York. So we worked really closely together for a while. And then he's like, I'm quitting my job. I'm leaving. Blah, blah, blah. You know, you should think about some of the stuff that we're doing. And then, you know, basically um, in between me leaving X them, leaving their jobs and starting brave ventures. Uh, in the middle of that, I decided, Hey, I'm actually going to make a thing out of this Del Mondo. I'm going to, going to go see, I have a couple influencers that I really believe in and, and the videos that they make. And I'm going to go and pitch that. And I'm sure that I know people in other agencies that are going to want to work with these new influencers as well. This is kind of like starting to be a thing. Um, And so I launched Del Mondo in December. And in January, I started working at Percolate because I needed to pay the bills. So I took a job at Percolate in New York City, literally was there for like 30 days. And Jesse and Dave, like, I got my first client, which was 20th Century Fox. uh, And then I, you know, with that, then we had uh, like JBL and a couple others really early on. So I think I got three or four clients that wanted us to make. Snapchat videos, YouTube videos, right? With these influencers. And, you know, at the same time, Justin and David were like, Hey, we'd love for you to come and work at our, you know, at our advisory group that we're starting, you know what I mean? Why don't you come and like, think about working for us? And, they didn't even realized that I had started this company in between. So I was like, well, actually, like I have this company that's kind of like around influencers like, I and pitch for video. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they're like, what? And I was like, yeah, well, you know, I just closed a deal with 20th Century Fox and everything. And they're like, you need to do that, you know? So then they basically said, hey, we will invest, you know, we'll invest a, a seed amount in, you know, kind of like a friends and family. If you come in here and help us. You know, come here and be one of the early employees of the Brave Ventures. But then we'll incubate your business. We'll put money in the business for you to hire people, and we'll help incubate you. Uh, and so that's when Delmondo kind of crossed over from just being a consulting kind of umbrella to then being a real company. Because pretty much after that, I was start. I'd already, you know, to, to make a long story short, I was already hacking around when we were doing these campaigns into the the Snapchat code and kind of learning. What were the types of metrics that they were collecting, but they weren't exposing, right? Because there's lots mm-hmm. of things that software collects, but doesn't, you know, doesn't always show it to you in the app. So I was looking at the things that it was collecting and, and so on and so forth. And so in the middle of all that, we were building this influencer, you know, started to build this influencer, this influencer platform. And they really said like, listen, you have something here, you need to build technology, this is not an agency. So we'll invest in you and you can come here. But like, we want to see within two years, we want to see this switch to a software model. Yep. And so then that was nice. it. So Delmonda started off really early as influencer software partner, hybrid partnerships. Um, but the goal was always by, you know, within two years to make a full move to a full software driven product, which, you know, I drew from my experience working now at Live Fire in San Francisco and expion working at these product and software companies where I now could go in myself and, and, you know, really lead building the product as a product manager.
1: When you, so in, when you sort of embraced the Del Mondo Foley and you start, and you, so you, you then sort of develop this more of a software sort of tool. Um, I, I'm curi- I, I'm a bit curious, sort of like how, like you just mentioned some of your past experience helped with it, but how challenging was it to like switch to, a SaaS model and and like create, you know, software that, you know, folks could just, you know, subscribe to and serve themselves with. Um, And then I'm also curious at what point did it become, you know, and and was that, was it clear then? Or at what point did it become clear? Wow, an exit actually could be a realistic and, and favorable outcome in this wave that Del Mondo's in. You know, I'm, you know, so, sort of curious. Those those are my two questions. It's like, how hard was it, like, to identify those factors of like what was being collected but not surfaced, so that you could create a really good analytics tool and in in, a, in as efficient way as possible. And then, at what point did you realize, hey, this thing I've built, the way it fits in the market, we we have some suitors out here that should acquire us. Yeah. Well, I guess the first thing is, uh, I've always been, in you know there's
0: all different types of of products that are out there. Right. And so, you know, I would say that I'm not classically trained in building of products from the ground. Like there's all different schools of thought and things like that. But um, for me, what I, you know, I had, I like to joke and say I play a developer on television. Right. So my entire basically, you know, life now, you know, since I was 16 or 17, I've been like hacking and noodling around under the hood of stuff, Mm -hmm. right? I wouldn't say that I'm like an expert mechanic, but I'm enough to be dangerous. That's why I joke around and say I play a developer on television, right? When I, you know, so I've, I've, I understand how to build systems. I understand how to do the reporting. I understand the goals and the outputs of what people need, right? And then at the same time, I I had the ability to buy a lot of these tools, so I spent years working at other companies, buying, you know, looking at different software tools, using different software tools, building with things, and then when I got to the when I got to things like LiveFire and then to Expion, to be a strategist in some of these types of companies, you have to. I think you you have to know what you can do and what's not said, right? So I always really considered myself to be like a social platform expert and know that like, hey, you know, you can't, you know, you're not going to be able to get public video views on, you know, on an account that's not authenticated because Facebook's API doesn't like all those little nuances I always knew because I always had to figure out like, what could we do, especially in the early days, like at LiveFire, Fire. The fact that like, hey, if we just started to pull the longitude and latitude from the API, we could then create a geofence that then just puts together people that are in a specific radius, right? And like the Facebook API or the Twitter API doesn't do that, but it gives you all of these like little pieces that then you can put together. And then we could build something with that. We could go and like build a cool widget. We could go and sell that to somebody and, and you know, kind of like my role as a strategist in LiveFire and then, you know. Even less, lesser at beyond but you know, was to go and like find those expansions, and then at Expion it was all about like really understanding how do you build the most effective data and analytics tools, right? Because then people were building custom reports, building dashboards, and trying to then report back on all these different use cases. So, you know, how how easy was it? I don't know. It did. It, it, looking back on it, it wasn't really that easy because I didn't really yeah. know. I don't. I'm not like a programmer, right? So I can you know, I can, I can build a website from scratch. I probably know a lot more now than I did back then. Um, but like a database, the concept of like saving and storing data and things like that, that I had no idea. So like, I knew that I could draw up and I could write up all the things that I wanted it to do. And I could even tell you what I wanted it to look like, or like mock up what I wanted it to look like, but I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, pull the data, yeah. save the data, store the data, call the data again, remember yeah. it, like, do stuff so it did this when I would do that, you know, like, all of those things, like, yeah. you know, I, I, like, I hacked together the first version of DelMondo's Snapchat analytics and just a Google sheet, right? And, and, nice. and basically, like, one well, the, side well, of the sheet took in the, the
1: inputs and the other side of the sheet put out the dashboard, right? And so, it was very, nice. very I mean, you know, manual. Like a lot of good product owners... You're, i mean it sounds like you understood you understood meticulously the product requirements and you had a good command and confidence in the product requirements you obviously needed people with certain skill sets to execute elements of the programming but that's you know that makes sense um but yeah I mean, the, the words product requirements come to mind just like when i work when I've worked with good as i work today with like product owners i i real you know realize like you know product owners you know kind of there's a start and stop to the to the skill set and you, you kind of want it that way like you know there's a yeah. certain handoff point where, you know, you let the, let the programmers do their work. Uh, any sort of like pr- particular like m- events that happened in the journey of Del Mondo, I think it was four or so years, like, le- like bef- that maybe helped catalyze you toward like the Conviva exit. Uh, yeah. Cause you definitely. stuck the landing on an exit and it's, you know, a lot easier said than done.
0: Yes, that is a fact. Um, listen, I, I think um, to, to your to, to the, the question you asked earlier, there was just a couple things, right? Like in my mind, there were lots of small business tools that are out there. And I always focused on the biggest brands, the biggest companies, the most nameiest of the name brands. So we then that kind of like that that lends itself to like my personality in a lot of ways to a certain, you know, up until that moment in my life, I always loved working with the flashy brands, because I felt like you'd get the biggest recognition, the widest audience and the biggest chance for success, right? Um, in a lot of ways, but I always really like to work with the cool name brands. Um, um, and so... When we were building this as an enterprise solution, your price points are higher. You typically charge more than the average, right? So we were always a little bit higher than some of the other solutions that were out there. Um, we didn't ha- maybe have as many clients as the other person, although we had a lot. We didn't have as many as some of our competitors, but they were paying more, right? And we raised only a little bit of money. So we were constantly in this, in this thing of like, hey let's try to go get VC money, let's go and raise more investors. But you know, we were profitable by the end of the first year. And we Mm -hmm. basically sunk all of that profit into hiring more developers, I brought on a technical co founder, who built the first code base. And so I would say there's a couple key events. The first event was, was when we had our partnership. When we kind of like, I would say when we when we transitioned being the first to launch Snapchat was cool. And we definitely got some like love, but we were still kind of considered a point based solution, where it's like, Oh, if you just need Snapchat stuff, you might go to Del Mondo. And then when we, you know, when we started building the first like live streaming analytics, which people really weren't doing yet is like real time live social video analytics, we started with Facebook and you now. Um, and, and, you know, we got that stream. first stream, I said, don't forget stream and stream. We never built the we never built the analytics for no. stream, but we talked about it. Um, but no, we I don't were think you needed to. Yeah, but yeah but we, no,
1: there was well, that was when. And for folks that are listening, true, like yeah. live streaming was a thing it was like popping off. So there was there was a lot of players that were trying to. In one punch. month, it was it like Meerkat, Periscope,
0: Stream, oh Facebook God. Live, yeah.
1: intense. Meerkat had hundred fifty thousand users like that, and then it bit the dust. I it mean, it's dust. just it's hard to build a sustainable consumer facing yeah um, business of any sort never mind like a media a media platform in in our very competitive attention economy yeah so so yeah. we had you know we had investment from
0: you know Jesse Redness David Beck and then obviously Gary Vaynerchuk so the first year yeah. was big because we were really leaning into Gary was was blowing up on the Snapchat side he was just starting yeah. the Ask Gary V show and kind of making his ascent to be you know a personality in the way that he is today at a much bigger level like the the you know the superstar style mm-hmm. tony robbins style um he was just starting so that first mm-hmm. year that was at the end of the first year when we had done some of this you know we'd gotten some good traction on that snapchat i felt really good about it but then the next year when we got the official we launched the facebook live analytics where facebook's first official Measurement partner for video and live video, and then had heard rumblings of Instagram Stories coming out. That was that to me was like one of the big catalysts because now the dominoes were falling, um, mm-hmm. and so that would be one moment. So 2016, we basically got that Facebook partnership. 2017 was our first, you know, I would say like one of the first major wins from like the analytics side, where like NASCAR left their, you know, one of the big big competitors out there and said, Hey, we're going all in with Del Mondo as our sole social analytics solution, right? And that's when we started to really lean into not just social video, but then, you know, non video content as well. So like tweets and photos and everything. So basically, you know, we went from 2015 2016 being all social video, July 2017, having all forms of content on social media. And then in 2018." When Cambridge Analytica hit and we actually scored a deal with Facebook, so Facebook actually in 2018, one day Facebook shut off the API with Cambridge Analytica to most of their clients, left us open with a couple areas, and then the day after cut us a check for like a quarter million dollars for for mm-hmm. being able to provide data and insights to like 25 major uh, major sports and organizations and businesses across like facebook live and instagram stories and so you know those three things happening in a row when we finally when we when we were able to stay mm-hmm. in business despite everybody freaking out about cambridge analytica um mm-hmm. uh, that to me was like okay now we have something where you know we're in the millions of ARR that's happening right now. Um, yeah, one, what VC wouldn't invest in us? But even then, like, who cares? Because I'm already making a lot of money. And so once we once we got some of those early Facebook deals, then you know we started to basically, we started to get more questions. People started to like take us at, seriously at the at the next level. Now, companies like WWE and Turner Sports are saying, hey, like, I love that you brought all of our video in one place. I love that we can pull in all of our posts. Like, what about the video that lives on our website? What about the video that lives mm-hmm. on our mobile app? So, we got to this point where it's like, we didn't have any more social networks to add because there weren't any yet. TikTok was like, you know, we, we actually had supported music, we supported musically super early on, because we worked with MTV, like, before musically died off, and then came back with the whole TikTok resurgence, right? Like, musically was a thing mm-hmm. for a year, and then like, had a quiet period through the acquisition, and then came back and blew up again. Um, and we were early on that too. So, so there were literally no other platforms for us to support. So we were built, we had basically become your source of truth for all of your social data. For your owned and authenticated social data, and so our customers were like, "What's next? Let's get our owned video and bring that in one place, so now we can really see all this together um and once that that started, that's when I realized that um I don't have any senior people, I don't have any senior executives. I don't have any sales people. It's myself. I had an, an awesome intern who was doing work um and then I was I had at that point, I had a team of ten, so we had our you know we had our customer success team myself." And our development team, and so we were like a team of eleven going out there in the market, really hustling. You know, I was doing product management, selling, and marketing. We had, you know, Mike Metzler doing a lot of the customer success. Tara doing the market, doing the customer success, really like making sure that all of our clients were taking taking care of and really being there for them. Um, and so, like, I realized that we we just weren't going to be able to get to the next level unless I had. Something else, like I needed more people for sure because I needed to scale this business up. I needed to to grow, um, but I never had any experience doing that. So that's kind of like, and I don't even consider it a you know. At one point, I kind of was like, "Is that a cop out as a founder?" But then I I came kind of came to the realization. It's like no, like I have built something that is making money, that's profitable, that is software, and that's really really hard to do. So there's got to be some other company that has. Experience, expertise, um, other people that I can learn from, that I can go in, mm-hmm. and those are the types of things that I'd want to have too. But then I also don't have to have the overhead of like people trying to tell me what to do. And in a sense, I get I get mine. I get to be successful, and I also you know, but I want to keep growing the business. So to me, there was like a whole set of things where it's like if I can find another company that wants to absorb this and expand but then i can keep working and building like we're just getting started here um and so yeah that's kind of like what ultimately led us to, to conviva is like clients like wwe and turner sports um you know brave ventures got acquired by turner and and jesse redness and david back and the team went to go work for turner and i was i was you know still independent running del Mondo and um They basically introduced, they said, hey, we'd we'd heard about this company Conviva. They are doing a lot of like technical measurement of video for a lot of the Turner brands and they work with WWE too. But, you know, they measure all of the video just like you're trying to do. So instead of trying to go to JW player and pull from another API, because right, Delmondo, because we worked with these social platforms, we weren't the sensor." Right, there's two different kind of like you know, there, there's a multiple multiple different me- measurement methodologies. But in terms of like you know, data and analytics, right? You either you ha- either have a sensor that's embedded, or you're taking somebody's word from it and pulling from it. So now, granted, with the Facebook API, we got very granular. So we could check Facebook's work. So it's not like we said, you know, if a post got 10 likes, we could actually validate that 10 likes actually came through, right? So it's not like we just took Facebook's word for it. We were doing, you know, individual counting of metrics and things like that. Um, but it gets a lot harder the more you go. And so, so Jesse and David had recommended that if I'm going to, you know, build owned video like all these clients are asking for. That we don't go and, and build from an API again. We go with somebody else where we actually build the the code, the sensor that lives inside of the application. Um, and it just so happened to be that they met this company, Conviva, that was doing that. So,
1: yeah, that's nice. kind of how we got introduced. Cool. So then you get introduced, and wh- I mean, what was it like to go through the? acquisition yeah. process how smooth or 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 elongated did it become and and i'm curious kind of what it was like on the other side yeah i mean it was it was
0: exciting it was stressful it was all those things at once because it's like your entire your entire history as a company every decision that you've ever made basically comes back over the you know over the process of due diligence and negotiation and and you know looking into the the code and the tech and everything that you've built um, and literally like justifying almost every every point of your existence as a company why is this well why is this like why are you better than this why did Facebook let you mm-hmm. do that how come you're the only yeah. person that got to do that and and Facebook did, yeah. you know and everybody else didn't um, which is fun too because you get to kind of like puff your chest out a little bit and talk about how you make shit happen. But at the same time, you know, yeah, yeah. but at the same time, you're (laughs) constantly second guessing yourself, like, is this all going to fall apart? Like one of the critical things that I don't know why nobody ever or maybe they did and I didn't listen. But like, one of the things that we never did until we joined Conviva was annual contracts. I never had an annual contract until we joined Conviva. And then we basically converted all of our customers over. And, Mm -hmm. you know, every month I was wondering, like, you know, I had contracts that were written for a year, but like they could have canceled on me any month. Right. And and certainly Mm -hmm. after the acquisition, when the pandemic hit later, like if you're a small business, if you don't have like enough chutzpah, sometimes like companies will just, you know, cancel on you because you're a small company and they just say, you know, forget it. And, you know, Mm -hmm. you, you know, whatever, they'll take care of it. Not everybody is so, you know, so, uh, so generous to early stage startups and things like that. So there's a lot of things that, that could have happened, but, um, and it's also about finding the right fit. So Conviva for them, they were focused on much more of a technical measurement and they at the time wanted to really expand and move into audience measurement into content engagement. Into more of the business side of the house, whereas traditionally Convivo had focused on uh, technical measurement, like, man, we're putting video on the internet, it can't buffer, it can't have latency issues, we can't have video failures. And all these things are extremely critical, right, To to make video work today because video is the number one behavior that we're all doing on the internet most of the time so like the infrastructure is critical to be able to to make this experience all that it was but when you have to have that level of accuracy which conviva has because it's it's an amazing company and and an amazing you know product and technology when you when you have that level of precision and sophistication That opens up the best level of measurement for content engagement, for audience engagement, and all you can do um, with that. And and so, you know, for me, it was also really exciting to be able to say like, hey, look at what I'm doing, you know. WWE which you know is is one of the world's largest video producers on social video is using my platform and look at like look at how much more video minutes consumed are happening on WWE social versus what you guys are already measuring on their website on their mobile app You know what I mean? Or, you know, X, Y, and Z company that you're launching the streaming service. By the way, their YouTube has five times the amount of consumption that their streaming service. So like, look at, we're speaking the same language. And so for me, it was also exciting to show them that time is a constant time. It doesn't matter if I'm watching video on my phone, on my computer, on my television, right? We all only have the same 24 hours in a day. And so I might have multiple screens, but at some point, we only have enough time to be able to to watch yeah. so much content, so much video, and there is crossover. So this is why we need to deduplicate it. Yeah. How do you reconcile it? exactly? Um, yeah. So the the you know, and the process was really was really interesting. Legal processes. I got to know my lawyer really, really well. He became my best friend. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, he's an awesome guy. So that was that was really great. And yeah, like you know, it was it was a lot of work ultimately to get to. To get to the point where they said, "Hey, we'll give you cash, we'll give you equity," um, and then when the you know the papers were signed and you get that check and you see those numbers in your bank account, like uh, uh, obviously it's really rewarding and exciting. Um, but it's also, I don't know, it was really fun to go through the process. But then at the same time, like literally, at every day, wondering, is the deal going to fall through? Are they going to sign it? Are they going to pull yeah. out today? Is today going to be the day that I piss them off and like the deal goes sour? Or how do I balance that with all the customers that we have to keep the customers happy? And what are the customers yeah. going to think when we sell? Like, you know, how is that going right, to work? Are all right. the customers going to want to cancel? Um, so yeah. it's, it's really stressful. It's it's really fun. Um, you know. But it like, honestly, you know, between that and and the experience after, like, I feel like I've, I've, it was very transformative for me as a person. I feel like I learn, I understand more about, and you had a successful entire world, whether that's finances, numbers, planning, working with people, just opportunities of business. I just feel like my whole, you know, throughout the whole, you know, obviously I stayed on a Conviva, which we can talk about maybe, but. Through the whole journey you know of Del mondo and conviva through yeah. that kind of you know almost ten year arc ending yeah. last year when i when I stepped away um it was it was very transformative in my life right and 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 you know it was a long period of my life yeah. ten years but uh yeah. um but yeah like it, it was it, it, it's, it's 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 obviously and it's it's fun to be able to say that you exited and you had a successful business, but I'm even more. Um, proud of the fact that we were profitable when we exited. We went into Conviva bringing revenue to the table. I'll never forget like being introduced at Conviva and, and, you know, the CEO at the time of Conviva saying like, a lot of people were wondering like, why did we acquire this company? Why? And he's like, well, they're actually profitable and bringing revenue onto our books, which I thought was super, you know, I knew it, but like, it was really cool to hear, you know, Two hundred other people like realize and like that. Me, that be so meaningful to them too. Which was so. I'm always yeah. really proud for saying like we didn't just exit the company. We were profitable. Everybody made money, and we did really well. So it was. It's it's that, it's a great story to be able to have. Not everybody's obviously. It's very. Yeah. It's rare.
1: Okay. Um. But I'm I'm proud to be able to to have done that. Nice. Well, I do want to kind of jump ahead to like the last year plus, like. Talk about sort of like the the decision or the, the 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 variables that existed that sort of like helped you feel you know feel good about like departing Conviva and 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 what the you know which was you know tied to Mondo, which you know had this arc of things that you were doing for almost a decade at the end of 2022 you sort of you made the decision to leave and um and and sort of talk about like it went, went into that and sort of what you wanted to kind of seek out what you thought, how you thought you might now reemerge in, 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 in the, in the media, you know, sort of entrepreneurial sort of community and how it's actually gone for you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, like every, like every founder journey, it has to come to an end at some point. And I was already fortunate enough to have one, one, you know, one chapter ending right with, with that successful exit. And, you know, I was fortunate to stay on after we were acquired for another 4 years. We grew the business significantly, you know, we we grew the revenue more than it ever had been when I was running the company by myself, you know, with me leading all this team, and I got to learn a lot, right? So like that was my whole goal going into Conviva was like I'm going to stay, I'm going to stay here as long as I can, keep learning, keep leading. You know, I want to lead my team, but I also want to learn. I don't want to have resources and I want to be able to expand my knowledge. Um, and so over the four years that I was at Conviva, I learned a lot. Um, I got to, to, you know, become a, a great leader and, and work with people and grow the revenue, grow the product, right? Launch new things like some of the first TikTok analytics that we launched. Um, and then it got to a point where, uh, you know, I you know, really just wanted to to kind of expand and look for other opportunities, right? As a founder, there, you know, especially being a founder who gets acquired, you don't know, you you no longer have the ability to write your own um, ending when you are at another company, right? Once you go into that company after they acquire you, and this is by no means like a, a negative uh, comment, it's just a comment on the facts. The facts are once you sell your company, it's not your company anymore, and you go into something else and you are now an employee of that company. Even if you're the CEO, you are still an employee of that new company that's owned by somebody else, has different shareholders, different, you know, ownership structure. Um, and so, you know, it just got to the point where um, I loved the co-workers. I loved the people that I worked with. I loved my clients and, and everything was going really, you know, great. But for me, it was time to, to basically... Move beyond that, and and I'm not gonna lie, there was it was it was also lots of challenges in the world in 2022 in the world of social media. Elon Musk taking over Twitter was kind of crazy. That that kind of caused a shakeup. Mm-hmm. TikTok's uncertainty and legal status um, certainly was kind of crazy. So that there are definitely all these other situations. I don't know if they like weighed in on my decision to, to leave or anything, but it was more of the fact that I had also started to to do more advising and investing. Uh, two years ago, I started teaching at Syracuse university as a as a professor, and I really enjoyed doing that. Uh, so it gets to the point where where there are lots of things that I would like to do, but because I wasn't the owner of the company, I couldn't just do them under the Delmondo umbrella like I used to, mm-hmm. right? I used to be able to take on different side projects under the Delmondo umbrella, even if they didn't fit the SAS client, because those were things that we got to do. Um, and so there was just a lot of new opportunities that were that were kind of coming to me that and I wanted to, you know, take advantage of that. So for me, that was basically, you know, a good time to, to get everybody in a good place. We, as I mentioned, where we were, we had the most clients, most revenue that we had had, had the history of, of, of the Del slash Conviva business of that software of social insights. So to me, it felt like the perfect time to, to kind of end on a high note and and leave on a high. So that was, uh, that was basically why I made, you know, decided to leave and, um, and since then, I've basically been really focusing my time on what I just mentioned. So leaning into, you know, go to market and growth consulting with companies helping with strategic planning or execution in certain components, doing a lot more advising of early stage companies. So I work with companies like Gondola, that's like a next gen creator platform for for a portfolio, kind of like a LinkedIn meets IMDB for the blue-collar creator economy that's out there. I work with another company, Squad, that's all about combining Mm -hmm. um, QR codes and and customer engagement applications inside of stadiums and arenas and mobile apps with a lot of sports teams and leagues. Uh, So they're doing really well. They're, once again, kind of an independent, small, scrappy startup that's doing really well. Um, uh, others, I just, just joined, uh, verse fantasy. So a fantasy gaming, even though I'm not a huge fantasy, uh, sports player, I'm really interested in the convergence of betting and media and date, you know, mm-hmm. the data that's gathered through the act of people playing real money games that we're able to capture. So there's some interesting things with that. And, um, and I'm also leaning back into to my Syracuse roots. So not only have I been a professor, so I teach advanced advanced social and digital strategy for master students right now, for grad students at at the Newhouse School. Um, and I've been teaching that for two years, and I you know this year will be my third year teaching it. And then I've also launched an alumni board with really awesome and prominent um, other young alumni who come out of the who have come out of the the Syracuse program. Um, you know, people that work at Endeavor and Google and American Express and Instacart, right? All of these great places that have really awesome young alumni um who are emerging leaders in their own right. So we launched this new house emerging leaders board. Uh, In order for us to basically provide advisory services back to the Newhouse School so they can, you know, really innovate in the world of public communications. Uh, But then at the same time, like really build an awesome community of like-minded young professionals who all have this kind of shared experience of going through the Newhouse School and building up the network. Um, and. Working with a cool little company called uh, Value Creation Labs on a lot of really interesting projects as well in terms of go to market and, and things like that. So it's it's been nice. it's been a fun year.
1: It's been fun. Uh, It's it certainly uh, as the curator of vibes of Value Creation Labs, we're l- lucky to get get opportunities to work and collaborate with you on different projects. So it's been a lot of fun the last year plus and. We got some cool, new, exciting things that we'll be working on um, this year and into the future. Um, Nick, I'm curious, like, you know, as we're kind of like getting close towards wrap up, just you're really thoughtful and and sort of like sharing like all your experiences. But like when you when you boil it down, like share some of your like tried and true kind of lessons from the years of being sort of like, you know, just. Just navigating, navigating the landscape, hustling, finding ways to earn, you know, ultimately find, you know, finding a way to, to, to exit a company. But what are the, what are the big kind of lessons that, that you would share, you know, with, with listeners, especially young listeners that are like you know, 21, 22, and they're like, you know, eager to kind of like, you know, get on the right foot, get on the right path, and just like exhibit the right sort of characteristics to achieve the success that they're seeking?
0: Yeah, I mean, and and everybody is going to be different, but I'll just tell you what worked for me. One of the one of the things is is constantly learning and demonstrating things that I've learned, especially as I mentioned earlier with the the way that the personal brand has transformed in the past twenty years. Now, um, I I always see this all the time about people joking around about uh, you know I don't need to see your fluffy sob stories on LinkedIn about like. You know, would you, you see this all the time of like sales guys who post something about like, oh, I had, a, you know, I, I realized that like I took a walk, I did that, you know, like you hear about like the hustle porn or like, or stuff that yeah. just doesn't even yeah. make sense or that isn't yeah. even relevant. Like nobody wants to go like creating a personal brand and, and putting out content and, and, and demonstrating your expertise is not just like filler stuff. So one of the things that's yeah. always worked for me is writing down the points of view that i have whether it's writing it in a blog mm-hmm. article whether it's trying to to contribute quotes somewhere um and and, and most of the time before i was you know before I, I knew anybody i was just putting it out on my own platform right just writing it up on my own blog putting it out on my you know putting it out on my twitter putting it out on my facebook or whatever connecting with other people and writing down the things that were in my head and i think we, get, we have a tendency to get to too much in our head and 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 I'm still like this even now like there, there's times where you get so in your head that you you don't want to like put out those things or you you almost like worry about what other people might think especially today with there's so many different points of view and there's yeah. so many different people telling you to post and write and do this right but it is really important because if you don't if you don't put the pen to paper it's really hard to memorialize your knowledge and your thoughts so That's one thing that personally has always helped me, um, is not, is not just that I'm out there, but like, there's tangible, there were tangible things that, that you, Zach, you know, could, could look at, right? If you meet me at an event, you might think, Hey, that guy's, that guy's cool. But then you actually have to have a way to sit down and, and peel back the layer with somebody, right? Like, how do we know? How do you know what Nick is? How do you know who Nick is? How do you know if I actually even know the shit that I'm talking about? right? Like, I'm just mm-hmm. a guy, I got a name, I can write stuff up there. But like, what's the substance that I'm putting out there? And then, you know, if you're, if you're not working with somebody in, in, you know, in your every day, and talking with them and having meetings with them and seeing their work, you don't know what's up here, We don't know what their output is yeah. going to be. Um, so for me, yep. writing down things, putting that that out, no matter if I felt like I had an audience or not, helps me to memorialize the things that I have. Um, And then, you know, the other thing that I would say just like more of a practical thing as it comes to like the world of startups and marketing is in startups and and growth is like, one is most companies can be a lot scrappier than they, they really are. And but there's a point where you can become too scrappy, where you as a founder, like start to scramble all over the place, right? And so it's a really delicate balance for being able to know you know, what point am I scrappy and lean? What point do I need to go out and hire people? Right? Like in my world, I've focused on the things that were, I was really good at. I was good at creating content, marketing, like going out and finding press, especially about a topic that I believe in and I'm working on, um, you know, building the product. So I outsourced an accountant. I outsourced the payroll. I, you know, I got a virtual assistant to do all that stuff, you know, all the things that I didn't want to, have to do, I made, and, and and I realized those things. So that's the other thing is that really, if you're, if you're, you know, young or any age and thinking about going into a startup, one is like be scrappy because you don't want to waste your money. Right. So, you know, outwork everybody until you can't work until you're, Time in your day is no longer earning the you know when you hit your diminishing returns on your time um, but don't don't be overly don't be overly scrappy that then you're missing opportunities so there's lots of startups mm-hmm. that I see today that might be better with a thousand dollars fifteen hundred dollars two thousand dollars a month to somebody else as a consultant or something else and having really clear deliverables to get that done. Right. Uh, you know, that's the other thing is that too often, like I'll see people hire some of these consultants that don't have clear deliverables or things like that. And then they kind of just like waste the time, waste the money that they're spending with them. And, and, you know, you go back and it's like, what did you spend that on? So, you know, sc- right. be scrappy and figure out like what are the things that you can do the most and then find yep. others that are like you. And, you know, yeah.
1: Nice. I love it. Um, all right. Last question. What's your challenge for listeners? My challenge for listeners
0: is to spend more time in nature. So I'm a big outdoors guy. I know that you are too. You like being outdoors, like take walks, like to, you know, go and I just really like to be in, in nature. So, yeah, I don't know. I was just, I, I, you know, was thinking about that the other day, walking through, you know, my backyard as like a, you know, little forest path that we can walk through and, I just like walked over and I like listened to the brook. I you know walked over to the side of the pond and I noticed that there was a giant stick blocking like the babbling brook. So I pulled the stick out. You know I reached in and I pulled the stick out and then all of a sudden like the brook is babbling once again. And and just like thinking about nothing and just stopping and just and just being around. Um, it's I think it's just really important, right? You can do so many yeah, things. I and, agree. And so that's the challenge. And I think it helps, hopefully helps you recenter yourself on, on what is really important, because if you have this day and you have, you have who you love around you, you know, everything yeah. else, right? Like, unless you have to go into a job and, you know, you, you, you have yeah. people who love you, you have, you know, you, you, we should all be more thankful and grateful for the things that we have yeah. today that we've already worked to achieve. Um, instead of always thinking about what's what's the next thing and and so i I, I, for me that being outside and being in nature helps me to appreciate because i I didn't have that freedom at at one point in my life and i didn't have the ability to be able to step outside of my own you know backyard or never did i think i would be able to have my own house or um, but you know so so selling the company is great and everything but the fact that i am now just able to be outside of my own backyard of a house that I own is, is, is just as fulfilling, if not more than, than having sold my company in a lot of ways. Right. And I, I feel, I reflect on that by just being outside and and in nature.
1: Love it. Nick, thanks so much. I, I, for a while, I've told you I wanted to do episode 100 with you, someone that I yeah. consider close, like a brother. And I like uh, this because we didn't even appreciate uh, you. Yeah, there's so much more yeah. that we could have gotten into.
0: There's so you know what I well, mean. You know, like,
1: there, yeah, I actually yeah. Before we kind of like end it here, I'll just say like I think that um, you and I have like a potential kickoff to a to another you know another channel on the Boston Speaks Up podcast network where maybe we talk about you know like like startup and media tr- like media trends and whatnot so sure. I want to I want to take that offline and talk to you a bit about like you know sort of talking about the trend spotting we're seeing and how like we're thinking of ways that companies can navigate like what's ahead of them I think there's there's a lot more for us to discuss um and and hopefully you know we'll see what the reception is from this but I bet I bet that um I bet there could be a unique format for you and I even to maybe get something going that's just something that's been in my mind but kind of going through today just helped reaffirm um, but yeah, I, I really appreciate you and, um, looking forward to continuing to collaborate and also just see what other heights you soar to in life.
0: Me too. I always appreciate you, man. And, and I love that you do this podcast and I love all the guests that you've had on. And yeah, I like that there's, it's a totally different, you know, really peel back the onion, as I said before, and get to know kind of the person behind the name or behind the content that you see out there every day. And, and it's just nice yeah. to get to know people at a,
1: at a more personal level right on. Well, thanks. Thanks, Nick. Uh, Cheers, Boston.